Good morning. I'm Brandon Gross. I'm uh, the Director of Adult Education here at Antioch Church, and I'm excited about this morning's message. So, get ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to gather here, to investigate your word, to hear from you, um, to respond to you in song and in thought. And we just pray that you would uh, make yourself evident one way or another to us here today and uh, help us go from this place changed. In your name we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 7. Chapter 5 of James, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, beloved. Until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You as well must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors as an example of suffering and patience. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see a recurring theme. You see a number of words uh, mentioned over and over in this passage. Patience, endurance, suffering. And they all have to do with the singular topic of this coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, what we know, if you've read the Bible a little bit, as the second coming of Christ. And in the ancient world at this time, in the time of James and the early church, this is the hot topic. This is the thing that everybody in the Christian world is talking about and waiting for. They're on it. In fact, 22 of the 27 books in the New Testament mention this concept, this coming of Christ, this day of the Lord. Everybody's on the edge of their seats in the ancient world waiting for this event to happen. The ball, as we'll see, has already started rolling in Christ, who is now, by this time in in history, he's gone to heaven, he's gone and left the earth, and the people of God are sitting on the edges of their seats saying, when's it going to come? When's he going to come back? When's this next big God event in history? They're waiting on it. In fact, James has spent five chapters exhorting his audience to do this or do that, be faithful, be kind to those around you, giving them advice on what to say and what not to say. And I have a feeling that those in the audience probably reading this or hearing this passage for the first time, they've been waiting for this one. They've probably blown off even some of the other passages when James is like, care for this person, don't show partiality. They're like, when's he going to talk about this coming of Christ? When's he going to get to the good stuff? And so chapter five, we waited five chapters, we're seven verses in and he gets to the good stuff. But for us to understand this, we need to delve a little bit deeper into our understanding of the world of the Bible. And it all has to do with this concept of waiting on God. Some of us in here are waiting on God. There's things that God has promised us. There's ways God has shown up at one point or another in our lives and we're waiting for him to do it again. We'll talk more about that later, those areas in our lives. We're just, we're waiting. We're sitting on the edge of our seats anticipating when's he going to show up? And James has some words for us. He's saying, be patient, endure. It'll happen. Give it some time. But it all starts with something I told you I was excited about this message. It starts with me communicating a very, very obvious thing to you. I'm going to explain to you your uh, impression and understanding of time and how time works. And there's going to be a point in some of you in this next probably two or three minutes where you're going to be like this, kind of of nodding off. Because this is going to be so obvious and, and blatantly simple, you're going to be like, why are you even wasting my time this morning? 
bear with me because after I show you the way you already, something you already know, the way you already think about time, I'm going to tell you the way the world of the Bible thought about time, and it's markedly different. So here we go. This is extremely obvious. I hope we're going to be able to see this in the upper rows. There's three elements to time. There's the present, there's the past, and there's the future. Everybody with me so far? Okay, and this is how we view time. There's a line. One point, we have the past. Smack dab in the middle where we are is the present. And somewhere out there is the future. Everybody's still with me, I'm sure. And what we do is we say, okay, here's an event in history. Let's say it's the Civil War. Late 1800s, right there. That marks a spot in history. Okay, and then we have maybe the founding of America here, another point, 1700s. Okay, and then we have maybe an event like the birth of a significant loved one or the death of a loved one. We have that point, and we mark that down in history. Okay, and we go way back, and we're like, fall of the Roman Empire, or the Catholic Church is split with the Protestant Church here. What does this allow us to do with history? I know, I'm, I'm losing you, aren't I? I mean, this is, this is so obvious, such simple stuff. But trust me, bear with me, it's important. What does this allow us to do with history? It allows us to step back and ask... What does it mean? We step back and we view history, we view events in the past, and we say, okay, that happened there, that happened in that year, we're here, how do our decisions that we make, not only in the present, but in the past, how are those going to affect what happens here in the future? What does it all mean? Okay? We also ask, that word is going. Where are we going with history? Because we view history... And you can see this is very simple. It's a line. We view history in what we call linear thought. A line. Okay? So we view events that have happened in the past. We view our present decisions. And we think about what does it all mean? Where are we going? Obvious stuff. Everybody's with me. The ancients did not think of the world this way. Instead of thinking about time in a line, asking where is time going, where is history going, the ancients, because they observed their world, thought of time as a cycle. So I'm going to get a darker color. This is what the way the ancients thought of time. An event happened in time. Let's say something, some great empire rises up. Well, that, that is marked there. But it really would have had to do with, they would, really, it would have been seasonal, we would say. Here's the deal. I wrote that too small for you to see it. Here, I want you to get this cyclical idea. Cycles are based in nature. So the ancients, instead of viewing this linear time like we do, would have seen it a little bit more like this. There's a time during the season when it's cold. There's a time when it's warm. There's a time of transition in between those. Those are four seasons. They would have also seen, let's say, a time when we plant our crops. And then a time where we wait for rain to come down upon the land. And then a time when we harvest our crops. And then they also may have seen, let's say, the lunar calendar. Looking at the cycle of the moon. Now, this is, probably none of this is shocking information. But all of a sudden, when you start to really process this, the ancient world was going nowhere fast. You ever wonder why in the last hundred years we've seen more development than the last however many thousand years? 
You ever wonder why that is? It's because majority of the time humanity's been on this earth, we viewed time as a cycle. And just, we start one place, we go to this place, and we just wrap, and it just continues to go around and around, really going nowhere, having no direction, having no end culmination. This is the way the ancient world viewed time. Until God shows up. And God shows up and he kind of rocks this whole system. And this was the way the world thought about time, I would say, until about 1000 BCE, until God starts showing up and messing with history. He brings his hand down into our world, into our understanding of time, and he starts shaking things up a little bit. Linear versus cyclical time. It all starts, though, with this small group of Jews in the ancient world under the regime, under the um, bondage, if you would, of ancient Egypt. And it all starts with God delivering his people, let's say here, with the Exodus. And so all of a sudden, instead of thinking about time solely and well, there's a season we plant, and there's a season we have rain, and then there's a season we have the harvest. All of a sudden, at somewhere on their timeline, they have this event like the Exodus. And then maybe sometime later they have the event like the conquest where God gave them the promised land. And so they mark that down on their cycle and their understanding of time. They're like, okay, God showed up in the Exodus. We'll mark that down and we'll remember that. And then God's like, well, why don't we, why don't you also remember this? Remember when I brought you, I was so faithful to bring you into land of milk and honey of blessing. And then he's like, well, we have the time of King David, where David was this strong king for these ancient Israelites, and that's here. And then maybe we have that horrible event in the late 500s BCE where God allowed that that other nation to come into ancient Israel and just completely remove them from their land, destroying their holy city, Jerusalem. You guys with me so far? Cyclical time. So this is what happens. Because God continues to show up faithfully in the lives of his people, and he starts articulating this concept of a plan. He's not just out there saying, continue in your cycle, going really nowhere, having history go really nowhere. He's saying, remember the Exodus. Remember that I brought you in the land. Remember that I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And then all of a sudden, Israel starts to connect the dots. And so right now you're picturing time. Remember, our time is this line. Ancient Israelites all of a sudden started to get it, and a break happens in this cycle. And all of a sudden, if you grab this end, and you flatten it out and put it over there, and you take this end and you flatten it out and put it over here, what do we have? We have a linear understanding of time. Because the ancient Israelites, for the first time, not in their history, but in the history of humanity, of human beings on this earth started thinking about time as not just this cycle, this endless cycle of seasons here and seasons there, but history actually going towards some end goal. God having a purpose and wanting to take human beings somewhere. And in the Old Testament, the event where God is taking Israel and he's taking the entire world is called that day of the Lord. It's called that end time event when God shows up in a radical way in the lives of his people. And because Israel at one point was in bondage, right, with the Exodus, and then had a time on their own where they had kings and they ruled their own land, but then once again were subject to the rule and reign of another foreign power, 
they were anticipating God's day to come. Big time. They want God to show up, to actually physically liberate them. And so we have a bunch of passages in the Old Testament that hold with it this concept of God showing up. This day of the Lord. Some of them go a lot like this. If you can quick, uh, quickly flip to Acts chapter 2, you'll see Peter quoting one of these passages. And this is all going to come full circle to why uh, not only we need to wait on God, but why James would be exhorting his original audience to wait on God. Here it is. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter is quoting, this is just after Christ has gone to heaven, Peter is quoting a passage by the Old Testament prophet Joel. And this is really, this is probably 20 years, 30 years before James would have been writing to his audience. And he says, in the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. We're in verse 17. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see, shall dream dreams. And then he goes on, if you skip down to verse 19, I will show portents in the heaven above, this is signs, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Passages all over the Old Testament like that. The prophet speaking to a group of people who are experiencing bondage, living in a foreign land, and God is writing to his people to encourage them, saying, someday I'm going to show up and I'm going to tackle this foreign power that is throwing my people around. Someday I'm going to deliver them and it's going to be a big stinking deal. The heavens, the sun's going to go dark and the moon will turn to blood. I mean, you won't miss this day. Count your life on it. But then there's other descriptions There's other descriptions of the day of the Lord. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah, chapter 55. Just after Psalms, you kind of flip over. It's the next uh, big book. We'll go in Isaiah, chapter 53. And you've got to check this out. This This is where it gets pretty interesting. These passages may be more familiar to you than the ones of judgment, than the ones of the moon turning to blood. Verse 4 of chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases Yet we are accounted, we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's also a description of the day of the Lord. And so if you're a clever reader in the first century, you're reading the Bible, you're all of a sudden splitting these descriptions of God's next show-up big event in history into two categories. One category has God just rocking the physical world, going in, and if you've got a problem, you're this faithful person of God, God comes in and he's going to smash some heads. He's going to deliver you. But then over here are some other different passages, some other passages that focus on this servant of the Lord who's going to bear our iniquities and save us from kind of ourselves and what's inside of us, who's going to bear our sins, who's going to get messed up because of the things we have done. You see the difference between those two passages? We call this, in in theology, we call this the first and second coming of the Lord. And the Jews during Jesus' day, if you've ever wondered why they missed Jesus, 
It's because they were only reading the passages that talked about physical conquest, military action to deliver them, and not the ones that talked about this servant tossing up the religious system of his day, bearing the iniquities of the whole world, taking and suffering in a way that had never been experienced before. You guys get that? You with me? I know this is a little, little, little crazy, but you have these two days in the Old Testament. They're both referred to as the next God event in history. One of which is big events, God tearing up the physical world, liberating his people. And then the other one is a little more subtle. It's this suffering servant. It's the servant who conquers all the powers of evil by dying. It's, they're split into two. So now we move back to James. It's funny we're in a movie theater because a frustrating thing happens in the movies. Where the show has started, you've watched, let's say, the 15 or 20 minutes of trailers that we now have at the beginning of a movie, and you're like, when are they going to end? And like, like the green screen keeps coming up saying, here's another preview that's acceptable for all audiences. And you get to the end of it, and you're like, wow, that wasn't even acceptable for me, and I'm in like my 40s. <laughs> um, anyway, so you've watched 15 or 20 minutes of previews, and the screen gets wider, right? And you're like, all right, here's my feature presentation. Here's the big show. It's going to start. And, like, something happens, you hear this noise behind you, and the projector's like, (laughs) right? And everything kind of goes mellow, maybe the lights come back on. What's your thought at that point? You're starting to think about getting your money back. Wait a couple minutes, and you're out of the theater. Because the show in your mind, because you've seen the previews, because you've started your your experience, your movie-going experience, because it all of a sudden stops and you have to wait for a second, you get frustrated. This is the exact condition of James's audience in the first century. They've, the show has started. Because Christ has come, because those first passages have been fulfilled, everybody's on the edge of their seats waiting for the feature presentation, waiting for things to really get tossed up. But guess what? It's not happening. That great and powerful day of the Lord is not coming. Some of them that got it, got that Jesus was going to show up as God's manifestation first, set some wrongs right on an inward level inside of us. But then yet many of those Old Testament passages, many of those ideas about God physically showing up on earth again to liberate his people, those hadn't yet happened. So everybody's on the edge of their seats. And this is why James writes to his audience, be patient. If you're in ancient Israel, there's actually, I believe, an aura of excitement going on right now. Because many of these people, many of James's original audience has witnessed Christ and God show up in history through Christ. And they're like, oh man, remember that passage in Joel? Remember that passage in Isaiah? Oh, there's all these things that are going to come down the wire. God's going to show up any day now. And that's why you read Paul, you read the letters of Peter. They're always mentioned in Day is near. The end of all things is right around the corner. But just like you're sitting in that movie theater seat, the projector kind of screws up and time starts going by. Every day that passes in in the ancient world where God doesn't show up in a major way is a day where you have an opportunity to start losing faith in God and his timing of things. Lose faith in the fact that God actually wants to not only take all of history somewhere, all of humanity, but you As an individual, he wants to take you somewhere. So this is what James says, verse 7. James says, be patient. This farmer waits. He has to be patient. Verse 8, you also must be patient. So strengthen your hearts. God's coming. And then he says, after saying be patient again in verse 10, consider 
the example of the prophets. An example of suffering and patience. An example of people who absolutely bought in to the fact that God is going to show up. God has shown up and God will show up again. Here's an example of the prophets. And here's another element of me being excited about this morning. Exodus 32, and then we're going to look real quickly at a passage in Isaiah, has an example of where, you know in the Bible when you, well, you, you have this experience probably every morning. You get up, you get ready to go out into public, and you look in a mirror. The Bible often does that to us, doesn't it? You peer into its pages, you read a story about unfaithful Israel or the disciples who kind of don't get it, and what do you see? You see that mirror. You're looking back at yourself. You're, you're seeing the actions and the attitudes and the way of thinking about the world that you actually, that you actually espouse. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to just dab there real quick. This is one of the best ones. God is up to this point in the Old Testament story, the narrative of God working in history. He has delivered his people out of Egypt. Um, They've crossed the Red Sea where Pharaoh's army was destroyed. They've seen God show up by... um, leading them in this portent, the sign of fire, this pillar of fire, showing them which way to go. They've seen God deliver uh, and provide food for them with the manna from heaven, water from rocks that should have never produced water. They've seen God day after day show up. But then all of a sudden, we're in Exodus 32. And, and Moses has been called by God to go up on this big mountain that we know is Mount Sinai. God's chatting with Moses up there. And the people that have seen all these signs, have seen all these things happen, have seen God work in their waves and in their lives in so many ways, they're down and they're left waiting. So we're in verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. You're probably familiar with the story. Aaron then goes on and collects all of the gold rings and uh, rings and gold earrings from them, and he casts this um, calf or bull, which in the ancient world would have been a symbol and a sign for fertility and life, something that uh, the ancient Israelites at this time would have been very comfortable with because you would have seen it a lot in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, instead of waiting on God to continue to deliver them. Remember, it's not as if this Exodus event didn't happen. It's not as if this is some generation 200 years past who's never seen God actually physically act in their lives. No, this is, this is act, the actual group of people who saw God show up in their lives. They all of a sudden have to wait. They gotta wait a little bit. There's no forces of evil pressing in all around them. They're just sitting and waiting. They're waiting for God to show up again and they start doubting that he's going to continue to be faithful to them. They have to wait. Instead of being patient, they take matters into their own hands and they cast this golden calf and they say, Aaron says to them, this is your God. And he actually uses the name of Yahweh, the name of the Israelites' God at this time. Um, These are your gods, Israel, whom brought you out of Egypt, who who have uh, saved you. And all of a sudden, instead of having this fiery God up on top of the mountain who does things on his time, things through his understanding the way the world should work, what do we have? This very controllable, idle, calf thing that kind of does what we want. Right? 
the ancient Israelites have some God that they can control, something they can attribute. All the things that they need, they come from that thing right there. Not the God on the mountaintop who's dangerous, who, yeah, he showed up in my life a lot, done a lot of things for me, but he's making me wait right now. I've got this one right here that I can control. I can, like, put it under my arm and carry it around with me. That's that's my God right there. That's the thing I depend on. Same thing happens in one way or another uh, in the book of Isaiah. So if you flip back to Isaiah chapter 30, the time is about uh, 700 BCE, and uh, God's people are waiting again. The uh, extremely powerful nation of Assyria is knocking at the door of the southern kingdom at this time, Judah, um, remember just after the time of King David, that very famous Israelite king, the nation of Israel split into two with a number of tribes in the north and, and a couple tribes in the south. And the tribes of the north, the nation of the north, known as Israel or Ephraim, kind of, kind of tricky, has been destroyed, has been carried off into exile. Assyria has come down, and because the nation of Israel is kind of, kind of like this, it's lengthwise, almost like California, Assyria comes from the north, they hit Israel they hit that northern kingdom, boom, they're off the face of the earth. The destruction there was just unbelievably great. So they're gone. Okay, That happened about 20 years before this passage. Now the southern kingdom, which holds that holy city of Jerusalem, is under pressure as well. Assyria is kind of tasted. Oh, we can mess with these people a little bit. They've got some good stuff. And so they continue to march south and they start putting pressure on the southern kingdom. And God says to his people, hold on. Turn, around, turn back to me. Stop following after these things that really bring you no pleasure and do you damage in your life. Stop doing violence to the orphans and the widows so that you can give uh, financial status to yourself and put yourself in, in a position in life that you think is giving you blessings. Stop doing those things. And if you will, I'll come through just like I came through in the Exodus, just like I've come through time and time again in history. I'll show up in your life big time, but you've got to wait on me. And instead they're like, hmm. No, I don't think we like that idea. And they turn their heads south and they look at that nation of Egypt. And this is the most, one of the most ironic places in the Bible. They all of a sudden turn to Egypt, the land that they were delivered from during the Exodus, for help. Remember, those, that was that nation that oppressed them and did so much evil to them. All of a sudden, they're turning their, their back on God and lining themselves up with the powers in Egypt. And God is saying in this, in this passage in Ex, uh, Isaiah 30, don't do that. Egypt is not that power that was really fierce at one time. Assyria is going to mow them down. You'll actually end up getting in worse shape than you are in it. And now you'll add sin to sin if you go line yourself up with Egypt. If you go, and here's the key, instead of waiting on me, you take matters into your own hands. Things won't end up okay. And if you've read the story, you know that things did not end up okay. The group of people who wouldn't remain faithful in Judah at that time left and were walking their way down to Egypt. They didn't even get there and they were killed. God's saying, just, just wait. Wait on me. I'll show up. I've got things under control. It's not on your timetable. It's on mine. But wait, and a perfect example of this, an extremely powerful, powerful passage is, is uh, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Check this out. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Just wait. The problem, though, in ancient Israel at this time is it's, it's a lot like 
running into trouble at some point in your life and having to depend on your parents. You reach some kind of independence, maybe financial independence or this or that. And for you to, uh, for you to get your parents' assistance, what do you have to do? Adhere by their rules, right? You're like, we want, you know, we really want to help you out. This is great. Well, we'll come alongside you, but you've got to kind of come under our roof again, right? You've got to kind of do things our way. We don't think you're going in the right direction. So if we're going to give you this thousand dollars, you've got to do things our way. And, and many times in life, you've probably been there. You're like, no, it's not worth it. I'll sleep in my car. <laughs> but God is saying the same thing to his people here. He's saying, you want my help, you want my assistance, it is there, wide open arms of love to wrap you up and show myself to you in the most grand way, but you've got to follow along with my rules. Because actually your way of doing it, although you think is going to help you out, is going to leave you worse off. Interesting. So, blessed are those who wait on God. Um, here's probably where if you haven't been paying attention, it's worth paying attention. Instead of talking about ancient stuff that's kind of boring to some of us, we got to talk about you and me. Um, Ken and I were talking earlier in the week about the 15-minute rule. I don't know if you guys remember this from college, but it's when you've, you're sitting in the college classroom and the teacher has yet to show up. And you're looking at the clock and you're talking to that guy who kind of smells and then you're looking at the clock and you're like, man, 10 minutes have gone by. And then all of a sudden that kind of leader personality in the class pipes up and it's like, hey, you guys ever heard of the 15-minute rule? And some people are like, no, we shouldn't do that. you know. And then there's other people who are like, yeah, I heard it's 10 minutes. We should already be gone. And, and there's this, this inner dialogue that's going in the classroom trying to take those who actually want to get an education and not waste their money or their parents' money. And, th- and then there's the other ones who, who are gone at 15 minutes. You know why you're gone? Because there's a contractual obligation between you and the teacher, right? Your job to show up. You pay money for the class. You show up. You get there on time. And the teacher is actually supposed to already be there, prepared, ready to go. That clock strikes 7.30, like those brutal morning classes in college, and, and you start your education. A teacher doesn't show up for a kind of an arbitrary amount of time, and you decide the teacher has broken the contractual obligation. They're on trial. We're out of here. Never mind the fact that our parents are paying $80,000 a year for us to get an education. We're out of here. The same thing happens with God. God is on trial with us. We're just waiting for him to break the contract. We've got our classroom. We've got our life. And he's supposed to show up in a certain way. And this or that time, it's our time, not his. He doesn't show up. The contract is broken. We make all kinds of excuses why we can take life and our matters of our situations into what? Into our own hands. Problem is our our categories for God don't fit him. Right? The box that we put God in doesn't fit God, and he lets us know that time and time again. The timetable we have for God to show up in our lives, simply, he's not going to follow those rules. Because we think we know what's best for us, remember that? But God actually knows what's best for us. And what's even better about that, he wants to give us what's best for us. When it comes to time, and, and, and we're going to tie one more time after this back into this James passage, but when it, when it comes to time and how the world works... I think every generation um, wants to be the capstone and instead of the brick in the middle of the wall. Do you know what I mean by that? Like God has done things in history, and and I I really picture history like a a just giant red brick wall. 
And so you have these small little five-inch or so bricks, and, and that's one event in history, and that's like a whole generation of people there, and God's building something. But those bricks in the middle of the wall aren't so glamorous, are they? You might get your name on one of them or something like that, like at a baseball stadium, but really there's no significance to those little bricks. They play an extremely important role. You take one of them out, right? The whole wall can crumble. But but really along the way is this wall of God's action in history and what he's taking, where he's taking history. Those bricks really don't do a whole lot. They don't get a lot of attention. Every generation, I think, and every individual wants to be that capstone, that big fancy piece of marble that you put on top, that like final act in history. That's why this example and this, this uh, concept of the day of the Lord receives so much attention and has for the last 2,000 years. Every generation has thought, Jesus is coming back in my generation. Gulf War, right? 1990, 91. People started writing books on the end times because, oh, that's like war in the Middle East and there's some stuff in the Bible. God's coming back. You probably remember sitting in like special church services to talk about whether or not God was coming back, right? And we're like 16, 17 years later and, and he hasn't come back. A lot of people made a lot of money though writing some pretty fancy books. I wish I'd kind of gotten in on that. <laughs> you write an entire series like the Left Behind series, um, yeah, on that camp concept, and you make a lot of money. Because all of us want to be the capstone instead of that, just, you know, the brick in the middle of the wall. We want to be that big event in history. Um, as a side note, if you're interested on those kind of subjects, um, feel free to, to, to contact myself, or I know Rick Gerhardt and I were talking about, um, many of times you sit in a service like this, you have questions, you have issues you want to bring up. In a couple of weeks on the 16th, we're going to be starting um, our adult education classes back up. I'm going to be teaching a class on, this is a shameless plug, by the way, on the life and teachings of Jesus. So if you've ever wondered why there's four Gospels, what the heck Jesus is talking about when he mentions the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, why he's so confusing at times, um, that would be a great opportunity, 930 we're going to go four weeks and just check out the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, so that's the end of the shameless plug there. Um, not only do we want to be the capstone, we want God and our relationship with God to work like McDonald's. I had a professor in, called them, in college that called them McBlessings. You know, you pull up to that drive through menu and there's like new car and like girlfriend or husband or whatever it is. And you're like, I'll take two of those and one of those. And, and, you, and you get like, Two, you know, 30 seconds later, you pull up to the window, you give your very small amount for some really bad food, and you're out of there. So this is the McDonald's life. We do the same thing with God. We have this McBlessing, right? We want him to work fast on our time. It's the Burger King slogan, have it your way. And God's like, not a chance. <laughs> you kill yourself. This McBlessing concept of life. Um we seek alternate means of dealing with situations when God doesn't show up. So uh, now we're back to you. This this morning we're on the we're on the second of September, two thousand seven. It's ten thirty in the morning, and you're waiting on God. Some of you are waiting more faithfully than others. Some of you, you're waiting for a number of things. You're waiting for your first child. You're waiting maybe for a husband or a wife. You're waiting for that new house. You're waiting for direction in your life. God to show up in a way and says, hey, here's the career you're supposed to go on. You've got all these big decisions, all this pressure on you, and you are waiting on God. And he is not showing up. 
And you're like, okay, Bible tells me to be patient. Pastor stands in front of us, says, be patient, endure. Okay, I can do that. Day after day passes and God doesn't show up, doesn't give you direction. What do you do? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you wait on God? It's just so funny what happens. I couldn't really think of a good illustration for it, but I know that there's always those moments when you're waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen and you take matters into your own hands and like the next second you turn around and there was the like right way to do it. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing I think with God. He won't give you anything you can't endure, but it may really stink for a long time. You may have to suffer and really endure. And I can preach a message and tell you to gain some perspective on your situation. Look at all those suffering over here, over there. Look at these prophets of old and all they had to deal with. Or look at, even James gives the example of Job. But it's, it's between you and God. And it comes down to you just simply being patient, enduring, and waiting. And continuing to wait. And some of you may have to wait, and this is where we get kind of a little edgy, Some of you may have to wait your entire lives. And maybe even then it doesn't come. The way you think life should work. Maybe that life you never actually get a hold of it. But you wait faithfully for your 60 or 70 years or whatever it may be. And then God has all of eternity to pay you back. (laughs) But that's just the reality of life. Sometimes because of our decisions or where God has brought us, life just doesn't work out exactly as we would want it to. And so God is just saying, wait, be patient. And here's where we, we end. We flip back to James. And James gives us a good one. He says in verse 11, you've heard of the endurance of Job. And here's the key. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. He actually does have a purpose. He actually knows what he's doing. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Those two words um, sum up God's, this really tricky phrase in the Old Testament known as loving kindness or, or faithful love. It's the covenant love. It's the love that God enters into a relationship with us. When he enters into a relationship with us, it's the kind of love that says, no matter what you do, I'm still there for you. And so God is saying, I have a purpose. I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. And on top of that, I'm compassionate and merciful. Stay on my side and things will work out for you. Maybe not even in this life, but things will someday work out for you. And that's the message James has for his audience, us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to look into your word, to be hopefully encouraged by it. I just pray that you would um, you would talk to us, that you would, along the way as we wait on you, that you would really be faithful to show us that um, you do care for us. Um, to know that we sometimes are weak and sometimes doubt and are so prone to take matters into our own hands. I just pray, God, that you would be faithful and continue to be compassionate and merciful with us. Thanks for your word and the encouragement we can get from it and from those faithful people around us who continue to give us examples in their suffering. In your name we pray. Amen.